We'll turn this evening to uh, Matthew's Gospel and to the fifth chapter. We've uh, looked at a couple of times here at the Sermon on the Mount, and we want to continue. We began a couple of weeks ago on verse 17, and where the Lord says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill or to fill full. And we're moving on then from that. We've looked at thou shalt not kill. Consider that together. We're moving on now to verse 27. And you'll see the link with the, more, the earlier reading. Verse 27. And Jesus, as he continues in this great sermon, termed the Sermon on the Mount, says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Amen. Thank the Lord again for this reading of his word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, as we come to consider this scripture this evening, Lord, we are brought to it by following through on this great Sermon on the Mount. We pray that we might gain, as we would seek to, uh, to glean amongst the, uh, the stalks here, Lord, that we might see wondrous things out of thy law. We pray, Lord, that that which is uh, here on the surface may be seen first. And then, Lord, as we would look down further and consider, uh, perhaps as we would consider with uh, a microscope, the more wonderful things which are to be found here too. And Lord, we pray that thou wilt bring these things to our attention. Help us, Lord, to not just to understand them, but comprehend them. And that they might be, as it were, guides in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, bless your word to us and all who will hear this word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so... These are the words then which the Lord Jesus utters and he is speaking about committing adultery. It follows on in fact in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments from Thou Shalt Not Kill. So it is perhaps we might say the uh, fourth of the commandments to men if we take the Sabbath day uh, that we are to uh, keep the Sabbath day holy, that we are to give the day off also to our uh, servants uh, they, they are they which serve us, not necessarily actual servants as we think of them today, uh, but, and also of the beasts of the field and all which would work, uh, all of these are to have that day. If we take that as the first, then we have honour thy father and thy mother, uh, which is quite foundational and it is there amongst the boys and girls that these lessons are learned and all of the lessons which follow. And that's why I think that that is the next of those commandments. And then afterwards, thou shalt not kill. And then after that, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
and after that thou shalt not steal. So uh, we have come then, as the Lord Jesus is preaching here, uh, to the second of these uh, that he uses. First of all, thou shalt not kill, then thou shalt not commit adultery. And he says, ye have heard that it was said by them, or to them, of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So I want to consider this under three heads. Uh, First of all, the bestial prohibition. And we'll explain those words in just a moment. Secondly, the basic progression. And then thirdly, a biblical projection. The bestial prohibition. What I mean by bestial? Well, bestial bestiality in this day and age is a, a, a meaning which used to be about the fourth. In fact, it was in my uh, Oxford dictionary. Um, it was the fourth definition uh, and uh, a minor definition. It's now been moved up to the first one, and that's what most people understand by bestiality. Uh, and uh, you probably uh, understand that. Not to touch anybody's sensibilities here in the service tonight but this original meaning means to be beast-like to be like a beast and so that word the the bestial prohibition has reference to the beast-like that is without higher function without the rationality that man has uh, that the beasts well they have a certain intelligence they have certain abilities but they are not able to rationalize like men they are not able to consider what the, uh, um, the results of things will be or to project into the future and uh, plan things uh, as man can do. So man has a higher function. And it is to this, of course, that the scripture appeals. The Lord speaks to that higher function. He speaks to our understanding. He speaks to our wisdom. He speaks to our minds, to our imagination. Uh, he speaks to those things which the beasts uh, would not comprehend. And although sometimes animals seem to be extremely intelligent in one way or another, yet they don't have that. Man stands alone with that kind of comprehension. So when I speak of a bestial prohibition, I am thinking about the prohibition of this this beast-like behavior. So I want to begin then under this heading of the bestial prohibition with a definition. Uh, The definition begins with with the creator's purpose. The world in this day and age, of course, has no problem. I say the world. This country, and perhaps uh, many in this country, and many in America, and those who would seek to uh, give guidance and instruction in these days and teach our children and to teach us and to to put their uh, take of things across to us, that, well, we are just beasts. Obviously, the the teaching these days is that uh, we came about by some luck and chance. Uh, There was a a big bang, they tell us, although others are now saying there wasn't a big bang, so I'm not quite sure where we are there. But the the excuse is always, well, science is always changing, and we're always ready to change our ideas. Uh, well, Well, we'll leave you with that thought. But uh, so that's the way it began. And then this world formed out of a a, a great gaseous cloud and and the elements came together and formed into this planet. And then on this planet, there were certain uh, elements and those elements became amino acids and they formed into proteins and the proteins formed into creatures, uh, just single cells to begin with. And then uh, began, began to amalgamate in some mysterious and magical way. Uh, to become us 
and when we consider ourselves, well, we are the highest form uh, that is known in all of the galaxies. Now, there is no other intelligent species known of, and although men keep on saying, well, there must be someone else out there, and we are looking, and we'll find them one day, uh, that has not been shown at all. So that's not a scientific fact, that's just a, that's just a hope, in actual fact, that they might be found right. But the definition which is given here is concerning the creator's purpose. We believe that God created us. And when God created us, he had a purpose for us. And that purpose begins with our intelligence and with our higher functions that we might have fellowship with him. Indeed, the scripture says that he made us in his own image. And so that we can commune with God and God can commune with us. And the creator's purpose is found in, the, in reference to the committing of adultery in these words from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where we read, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It was God's purpose that a man and a woman should become one unit, one male, one female. That the Lord Jesus also uh, uses this and he says in verse 5, uh, in verse 4 of Matthew 19, he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. He goes on to say, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So Jesus refers back to this thing as well. This is at the beginning. So for us, if you're a Christian or if you believe in the scriptures, then we come to this conclusion that the reason that man, unlike lots of other beasts in the, in the world, is not to have many partners, but just to have one partner throughout life is not just because we are made in that way. Sometimes people reference the swan, for instance, and there are other creatures as well who mate for life. And so there's a pair and they go through life and these are just animals. But it is not just because we are animals, just because we want to have one partner, just because it comes uh, as natural to have us have one partner, but because God has instructed us to have one partner. For man, of course, we can always make this decision, whether we want one partner, or whether we want two, or whether we want ten, or whatever it may be. And it works both ways. Of course, women can uh, have many partners too. And we find it in the world. And of course, there's no reason why that cannot happen if you believe that we are just the elements come together and amalgamated into some kind of a uh, biological form which has no future uh, and will come to its end and it's just a part like a plant uh, uh, growing in this world and has no real purpose. And that is where the world comes from and that's what it likes. But the Lord teaches that we are to have one partner. He does give us uh, the opportunity, perhaps if our partner dies, to marry again and therefore we can have, as it were, two partners but not at the same time. And that is where this comes from. The definition then of this bestial pro prohibition is the fact that the Lord says to us, don't act like the beasts. Don't be like the bull that goes into the field of cows and mates with them all and leaves them all with calf. You're not to be like that. 
You're to have one partner, you're to live with that one partner, you are to have offspring and you are to care for those offspring and look after them and they, that is the way that we are to live. And there's a particular reason for this also. Uh, some people say, well, uh, when Jesus speaks about the, uh, or rather when Paul speaks about Jesus Christ and the church as being the, the bride and the bridegroom, he is just using this as an illustration. The same way uh, we might say, well, he uses the vine. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. You know what a vine looks like. You know how it is. And he uses it as an illustration. Or he speaks of himself as being the shepherd and the shepherd and the sheep and how the shepherd looks after the sheep. That is not, I don't believe, what is, is in view here, but that God actually made us to walk in such a way because there is this union of mankind with God himself. And that we are to have one God and we are to have no other gods before him. There is a union between us as with Christ and the church, the called, those who are his people. So it's a bestial prohibition. God is saying, you are not like the beasts of the earth. You are to be different. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter refers to those who walk their own path. And he says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And Jude likewise uses the same terminology. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So the scripture actually uses this bestial term, beast-like term. They are just like brute beasts. They have no higher function. They have no spirituality. They have no comprehension. They're just speaking words. They have no higher function within their minds. So the definition then of this bestial uh, prohibition is that God says, and when we break the word of God, then we sin against him. And this is what Jesus is saying as he preaches. He says, I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle, shall he no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And the law being based upon God's command and upon God's relationship with his people. Secondly, then, there is this defilement. And the reason I use the word defilement is because the word Adultery is a word which comes from the Latin meaning to defile, from the word adulterare, meaning to defile. The same word is the basis of the, word, of the English verb adulterate, taking this straight from the internet. So uh, from the English verb adulterate, meaning to debase or to make impure. And we kind of think of adultery as debasing yourself or debasing uh, the, the other person. But quite often, usually I would suggest, uh, adultery is actually between two consenting adults. Uh, the third adult, the one who is being sinned against, the husband whose wife has been taken away, or the wife whose husband has been taken away, or uh, the, the wife whose husband has gone seeking someone else, or the husband who. Uh, or the wife whose husband has gone seeking somebody else, or the husband whose wife has gone seeking someone else, they, of course, don't consent. 
They're the ones who are damaged here as well as the children, and we'll come to that as well later on. But here, then, it means to debase, to make impure. So they're not just debasing themselves. Well, they are in the sense that they are making themselves like natural brute beasts. But they are debasing God's command. They are debasing God himself. They are blaspheming the name of God, and they're blaspheming his word, and they are blaspheming this picture which God has given from the foundation of the world of his relationship with his people who he has created. So when we think of this then, of this <coughs> uh, high position which, is, which has been debased, to made impure, to be defiled, it is the high position of a man or a woman who has been made in the image of God. Defilement of it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, a well-known part of the scripture, Ephesians 5.21, often not actually read, uh, but we're going to read it. Ephesians 5 and verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And note this word, these words from verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. These are the mysteries, of course, which Paul often mentions. And not that they are mysteries now, but because he has been given uh, to reveal those mysteries to us. He says, this is a great mystery. The mystery of Christ and the church. And our relationship to him. How that we are to be subject to him, but that he loves us. And in like manner, when we consider a husband and wife, although the wife is to be subject to the husband, the husband is also, in a sense, subject to the wife in the fact that he loves her and seeks to do all things for her. But there is a defilement. We are made in the image of God. We are representative of Christ and his relationship to the whole of mankind. And yet... This adultery, this going off after someone else, this blasphemy against the way of the Lord and considered to be such a light thing, such an easy thing. And the Jews of Jesus' time, of course, considered it to be so. Remember, they brought the woman had taken in adultery, but not the man. It was an easy thing for a man to divorce his wife, not so easy for the wife to to divorce her husband but if the man loved his wife he wouldn't divorce her he was just as guilty 
and certainly guilty of the defilement of the law of God. And there is here also a depravity, a depravity. Again, from the Latin, most of our language comes from the Latin or from the Greek, uh, sometimes from Old German or Old French, but usually even then from the Latin originally. Uh, Depravere, to pervert, to corrupt, to be crooked, the depravity. And this is the bestial prohibition that we should not be depraved, that we should not be corrupted, perverted, crooked, but that we might be straight and that we might be honouring to God, glorifying to his name. Of course, this is the heart, isn't it? And this is what Jesus is getting at here. The heart, Jeremiah says in verse 7, chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. These are the words of the Lord, the words of Jehovah. And Jesus here says, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Because the Lord looks upon the heart and he sees what is in the heart. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh upon the heart. And then there is this basic progression, I would suggest, because it goes on and says, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell." We've already considered this word hell uh, the last time we were looking at this, uh, this portion of scripture uh, from verse 22. And it is the word ge'enna. Ge meaning valley, enna from the word hinnom, the the valley of the sons of hinnom. The sons of hinnom offered their children through the fire to Molech and they were Canaanites. And so this harkens back to the time when the Canaanites ruled the land. One of the reasons, of course, that the land was given to the children of Israel was the wickedness of the Canaanites, which was full. And that the Lord therefore sent the children of Israel in there to clear out the Canaanites and to replace them. This Canaanitish valley, it was still there in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that it was the brook Kidron as a part of that valley anyway and it was down there uh, in the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Gehenna uh, down to uh, the south of Jerusalem. So it has two meanings here. What does it mean? We might ask the question, what does it mean to the Jews that Jesus is speaking to here? Well, of course they knew where Gehenna was. Uh, That's just down there uh, to the south of Jerusalem. Whether they comprehended what Jesus was saying and its deeper meaning of hell itself, it's translated hell here for us, but whether they comprehended that that was what Jesus was, was uh, getting at or uh, whether they, that, that Jesus was actually getting at that, it's left to us to, to uh, interpret. But when we think about this, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. 
The place Gehenna, the, the valley of the, the sons of Hinnom, was a place where the, where the rubbish, where the refuse was cast out. It is said that it was a place where the bodies of, the, of murderers and so on uh, were cast out and burned. It was a place of a perpetual burning. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's also mentioned uh, by the name Tophet, which means burning. And so a place of fire. And it was a place of burning. So it has that picture of a, of a place of fire and of destruction. But of course, when Jesus says these things, it is better, far better, that you lose one eye than you die and are cast out into the valley of Hinnom. Into this place is a place of disgust, a place of filth, a place of the, the offal of beasts and of uh, rotting bodies and corpses, a place of perpetual fires. You'd be better to lose an eye than to be cast into such a place as that. Or a right hand. It'd be better to lose a hand than to be cast into a place like that. And if the, the, the um, solution to the problem of being cast in the place of, of that was given to you today, where you can lose an eye or you'll be cast into the fire... You would probably choose to lose an eye or to lose a hand. In fact, when we go back to the time of David, you'll remember uh, in um, Jabesh, the men of Jabesh, uh, which is a name I couldn't remember this morning, uh, when they were uh, offered that same thing. They were either going to be destroyed by their enemies or they would all lose a right eye. And they said, well, we'll lose an eye. So they actually made that choice. And so Jesus is saying here, it would be better in that way. And why a reason, reason I call this a basic progression is because the next commandment after thou shalt not commit adultery is thou shalt not steal. And when we think about it, committed adultery is stealing. It is stealing the wife of another man or it's stealing the husband of another woman. It is taking that uh, a husband or a wife perhaps away from her children or taking the children with that wife or husband away from their father or their mother. There is a theft involved here. It is not just a matter of, the, of the, the acts of fornication, but there is a theft involved. There is the taking away. And the Lord seems to be progressing through this thought also, this stealing. And perhaps when he speaks about being cast into Gehenna, he is speaking also of the sacrifice which, is, which was there. There was a place of sacrifice, of heathen sacrifice. The sons and the daughters were passed through the fire to Molech. They were sacrificed. In Leviticus, in chapter 18, verse 21, the Lord said to the children of Israel, Thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Now remember this. When God said this, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They hadn't come into the promised land. They weren't in the land of Canaan and those things that were done in the valley of the son of Hinnom didn't affect them, but they were going there. I wonder actually, just to connect this morning's service, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, with the, what we're thinking about tonight, whether one of the reasons David wanted to take the fortress of Zion was because it was right next to the valley of Hinnom where these abominations were done. And he sought to uh, cause those abominations to cease. We find that certainly after David's time, some of the kings actually fell into that very same thing. 
Ahaz is spoken of in 2 Chronicles 28.3. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. In 2 Kings 21 verse 6, and he, this time Manasseh, made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. So there are two things to say here. First of all, their abominations were done by the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah anyway. They actually committed these same things. And Manasseh had dealt with familiar spirits and so on. And in Deuteronomy 18.10, this was also forbidden. There shall not be found among you any that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination, an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch. Probably that, that exact reference is why it's written in that way in the book of, uh, uh, of Kings. So there are two things to say. First of all, there is this corruption. And it leads us on from the simple uh, committed adultery with a man or a woman in the physical sense, which we might uh, see around us in these days, to this spiritual committing of adultery, which takes us back to Ezekiel, where we read, because the Lord applies that adulterous situation to Judah and to Israel. And he says, you have committed adultery with the gods of the heathens you have committed adultery with the assyrians you remember the adultery with the egyptians because they wanted to go to the egyptians to help them fight against the assyrians because the assyrians were coming now to destroy them and and the lord uses these pictures of adultery between his people referring back to ephesians of his people and some other god And so there is this basic progression to the stealing of his people, the taking away of his people, giving them to the gods of the nations round about. Not only so, but also bringing those gods into his house. We thought about this this morning, that David didn't do that. When he got the the idols of the Philistines, he burned them. Whereas the Philistines, when they got the Ark of God, they took it into the house of Dagon. God dealt with with the, the idol of Dagon when he was there. But here is a sacrifice then, perhaps referred to. And there is a sacrifice, isn't there? There is a sacrifice. There is a slaying. There is a passing through the fire to Molech of the children in an adulterous relationship. If there are children involved, how many children are damaged because their father has gone off or their mother has gone off? Or they have been carried away from their father or carried away from their mother uh, to, to some other situation where there's no stability, where there's no love, where there's no concern. And we might say, well, they might be better off because the the new person that she or he has gone to was nicer than the old one. But of course we remember this, that God has called us, as we see there in Ephesians, to love our wives. The, The Lord says, if you don't love your wife, learn to love your wife. If you don't honour your husband, learn to honour your husband. 
In this day and age, of course, people fall in love, as it's called. And they make their decisions based on what they feel at the time. But in the days of the scripture, these relationships were arranged. And so if you were to love your husband or love your wife, you had to learn to do so. Sometimes you hadn't even met them before. Remember Rebecca that comes and goes in with Isaac into his mother's tent. She became his wife. She hadn't met him. In order for her to fall in love with Isaac, she had to learn to love him. It's not a fuzzy feeling. It's not the lifting of your leg when you give somebody kissing, kisses. It's not that at all. It's something far deeper than that. The Lord says, learn to do it. So there is a sacrifice, a sacrifice of children, a sacrifice of a husband who has been left or a wife who has been left. How sad. And the Lord says, don't let it enter into your heart. When we consider the church, let's consider this also. Don't be friends with the world. Don't love the world more than you love the Lord. Learn to love him. Learn to desire him. Seek him. Honour him. For he will always keep his part. And he will always love his people. And there is also in this basic progression a stigma... And the stigma, of course, is to be cast into a fire. Mark 9.43, same situation which is referred to there. Mark 9.43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Here is that extension into hell, what we think of as hell, the lake of fire. So the extension is there. Whether the people who are listening really comprehended that extension, who can tell? And so we see this basic progression, the theft, the sacrifice of children, the sadness which surrounds adultery. And then finally, I wanted just to consider with you this uh, a biblical projection, and that is concerning what the Lord says about Aholah and Aholibah. The projection, of course, is of the adultery of his nation. And this applies to us all. We might say, well, I'm not married, so this sermon doesn't really have anything to do with me. I can't commit adultery. I'm not going to commit adultery. But we can commit adultery spiritually. We can go chasing after the world rather than the Lord. The time came... When Josiah, good King Josiah as he's known, defiled Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. In fact, it says that in this verse, 2 Kings 23.10. And he, that is Josiah, defiled Topheth, which is the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. In fact, when you read that portion of scripture, we find that he takes the idols and all that corrupts in Jerusalem. He takes it out and he burns it there at the brook Kidron, which is down there in the valley of Hinnom. How much are we corrupted? How much do we desire the world rather than the Lord? We may be involved in the world. That is 
a different thing because, well, we have to be involved in the world. How much do we love it? How much does it take our hearts? How much do we desire it rather than the Lord? If any man love the world, the scripture says, the love of the Father is not in him. Do we love the Lord? Do we love the Lord? Do we seek him? We referred to 2 Peter 2 earlier about these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart that they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. So even within the church, there are those who are adulterers, not just adulterers, but those who would seek to carry away others who are seeking to walk with the Lord into those adulteries, those spiritual adulteries. And we know that within the established church of this country, some of the the ways of the world have been accepted. And they say, yeah, well, these things are fine. The Lord says they're not fine. They're not fine. And you are cursed children. How careful we must be to walk in the purity of the word of God and to understand what the Lord's purposes are. That when he speaks of the things which may apply to us as individuals, he speaks also of those things which are spiritual. And he says here, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. This is spiritual. This is the corruption of a soul, not just the actions of the flesh. We come before the Lord and say to the Lord, cleanse me. Lord, give me a right heart. Renew a right heart, a right spirit within me, that I might know the blessing of the Lord. May the Lord bless these thoughts, considerations to us as we seek to walk with him.